Good morning, everyone, and we want to welcome you to the services here at Grace Church at Franklin, 4052 Arno, A-R-N-O Road in Franklin, Tennessee. We welcome you into the services of Grace Church this Sunday morning, and we would like to invite any of you who may be in the Nashville, Tennessee area to come out and worship with us. We have Bible study uh, that begins at 10, and we have Sunday morning services, 1045. We'd love to have you, and uh, we are on YouTube, Ustream, and sermon audio video, so you can keep up with it, and we want to encourage you to tell others about uh, that uh, broadcast. I still keep broadcast because we were on television for 20 years, so it's an internet cast, I suppose. But tell others about it. Pray for us. We're here to worship the Lord this morning. All right. Brother Josh. Good morning, everybody. Saved by grace in your hymnal. This is number 512. It's an old Fanny Crosby hymn. Can y'all stand with me? Someday the silver cord will break, and I no more as now shall sing. But oh, the joy when I shall wake within the presence of the King, and I shall see Him face to face and tell the story saved by grace, and I shall see Him face to face. And tell the story saved by grace Someday my earthly house will fall I cannot tell how soon twill be But this I know, my all in all Has now a place in heaven for me And I shall see him face to face And tell the story saved by grace I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. Someday when face the golden sun beneath the rosy tinted west, my blessed Lord will say well done and I shall enter in to rest and I shall see him face to face story saved by grace, and I shall see him face to face, and tell the story saved by grace. Someday till then, I'll watch and wait, my lamp all trimmed and burning bright, that when my Savior opes the gate, my soul to him may take its flight. I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. And I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. Amen. You all can be seated. We like to begin our worship services praising the Lord and reading his word and making an appeal to him. Brother Larry McKnight is going to come and read the scripture and lead us in prayer. Good morning, people. How about a little wisdom reading from Proverbs chapter 8, a portion of it from the New King James Version. Does not wisdom cry out? and understanding lift up her voice. She takes her stand on the top of the high hill beside the way where the paths meet. She cries out by the gates at the entry of the city, at the entrance of the doors. To you men, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O you simple ones, understand prudence, and you fools be of an understanding heart. Listen, for I will speak of excellent things, and from the beginning of my lips will come right things, for my mouth will speak truth. 
Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are with righteousness. Nothing crooked or perverse is in them. They are all plain to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Receive my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies and all the things one may desire that cannot be compared with her. I wisdom dwell with prudence and find out knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding, I have strength. By me kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me princes rule and nobles and the judges of the earth. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently will find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, yes, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. I traverse the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice, that I may cause those who love me to inherit wealth, that I may fill their treasuries. Shall we pray together? Father, we thank you for the treasuries being filled like you talked about, but it's not things of the earth. It is wisdom. It is knowing more about you. It is abiding in you, living in Christ. And we thank you for the song that we just sang, Lord. So rich and so powerful. When we get to heaven, Lord, it's not going to be any, here's what we did. It's going to be praising you for what you have done. Because you saved us, you loved us, you saved us. This day I pray that you would help us and be with us and help us to gain knowledge, Lord, and wisdom from God's word. And I pray that you would use our pastor, use the music, and whatever you choose, Lord, to bless us this day and to make us wise, maybe wise unto salvation because, Lord, you did it all. And we thank you in your name, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Brother Larry. What proverb was that? Proverb chapter what was that? Eight. Proverbs chapter eight. Oh man, this generation would learn that, right? Aaron, Eli, if, if you guys aren't reading the book of Proverbs, uh, there's 31 of them. You can read it every day. And I, I think Brother Bill told me to do that back when I was in high school. That's a good thing to do every day. I learned so much from the book of Proverbs, how rich it is. Okay, what are we on? Number 513. 513, he the pearly gates will open. Love divine so great and wondrous, deep and mighty, pure sublime, coming from the heart of Jesus, just the same through tests of time. He the pearly gates will open. Just my redemption and forgave me all my sin. Like a dove when hunted, frightened, as a wounded fawn was I. Broken hearted, yet he healed me. He will heed the sinner's cry. gates will open so that I may enter in for he purchased my redemption and forgave me all my sin love divine so great and wondrous all my sins he then forgave Sing his praise. 
precious love of Jesus, I shall enter heaven's gates. He, the pearly gates, will Mike, really loud? Am I blasting you guys out there? Yeah, okay. Might be a little bit loud up there, guys. I don't know. Um, let's do How Great Is Our God. How Great Is Our God. The splendor of a king Clothed in majesty Let all the earth rejoice All the earth rejoice he wraps himself in light And darkness tries to hide And trembles at his voice Trembles at his voice Y'all sing with me How great is our God Sing with me how great is our God And all will see how great Brother Bill, I think it's I think it's that time. Other with me, please, for the reading of God's word. While you're standing, I want to mention two things. I have some other announcements at the end of the service today, God willing. You can turn in your Bibles to Genesis 42. The two announcements that I want to make is um, 
We have a sister who has supported our work here for quite some time, and we want to acknowledge her birthday. She turned 92 years old this week. Uh, her name is Gloria Ward, W-A-R-D. Uh, we want to thank the Lord for Gloria and her support and her prayers. And then the other is a more of a downward, but yet a celebration, an old friend of mine named Sammy Tyson, who lived down in Georgia, Albany, Georgia, uh, went to be with the Lord this week, 83 years old, uh, married to a childhood friend of mine that lived in my neighborhood when I was just a boy of eight, and my family moved to Albany. And uh, so I met his wife, Jeannie, and uh, Jeannie is uh, responsible. She was the hand of the Lord to Sammy. He started having strokes some five years ago, and she has ministered to him. Uh, and uh, probably, humanly speaking, uh, he lasted as long as he did because of his dear wife who ministered to him. So we want to pray for the Sammy Tyson family down in Albany, Georgia, and we want to praise the Lord for our glory award. And uh, we've got some, uh, Brother Turner's mother is going to be 99 if she lives to the end of uh, Wendell Mitchell's mother. I think she's already 100 years old. I think she's going to be 101 if she lives a few more days. We praise the Lord for these, uh, these saints of God. All right. Genesis chapter 42, we just read a verse or two beginning uh, in verse 25, verse 25. Joseph commanded to fill their sacks with corn and to restore every man's money into his sack and to give them provision for the way, and thus he did unto them, and they loaded their donkeys with the corn, and they departed from there. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word, and let God's people say praise the Lord, and you may be seated. We're going to get back now to the story of Joseph, and today the subject is the providence of God. The providence of God. We're probably going to have two studies, maybe three, on this particular subject. Now, having taken a two-week break from our studies of Joseph, let me just bring you back up to speed. Probably most of you don't need any kind of uh, refreshment, but I'm going to give you one anyway. At least 23 years have passed since chapter 37. In chapter 37, Joseph was 17 years old, and now he is 40 years old. Then he was a naive teenager whose main responsibility was caring for his father's livestock, and now he is a wise man who governs the economy of Egypt. Then even his brothers paid him no attention, but now at his presence, at any event, it is publicly announced. He is publicly announced. Then his word meant nothing. But now no one can buy or sell in all of Egypt without his permission. Then he wore a little coat given him by his father, a coat made up of various and sundry pieces of cloth, each of a different color. But now he wears royal apparel clothing that's woven especially for him by the royal tailors of the king of Egypt. Meanwhile, Egypt and the surrounding nations are going through a famine. And at this point, they are about three years into it. And down in Canaan, which is where Joseph came from, that's his home, his family, is beginning to feel the effects of the famine. So as the chapter opens in the first two verses, Joseph's aged father, who doesn't even know that he's still alive, 
has ordered ten of Joseph's brothers to go down to Egypt to buy food. That's verses 1 and 2. The only brother he holds back is Benjamin. That's his youngest son, and he's the full blood brother of Joseph. And he's exempted from going. You can read this in verse 4. Well, when they get down to Egypt, Joseph's ten brothers soon learned the procedure for obtaining coin. They had to go to a certain place, and they appear before the governor of Egypt. Verse 6. Of course, as we saw in our last study, they didn't know that their little brother and the governor of Egypt were one and the same person. So when at last they obtained an audience with him in verse 6, they bowed themselves to the earth in reverence. When Joseph saw his brothers, according to verse 7, he recognized them immediately, but verse 8 says they did not recognize him. He spoke to them in an authoritative manner through an interpreter in the Egyptian language. You can see that in verse 7 and verse 23. He asked them where they were from and why they were there. They told him they were there to buy food and that they had two brothers, two more brothers, one at home, and they said in their language, verse 13, one is not. In other words, we have a brother who is not with our family. We don't know where he is. Well, after hearing their answer, he accused them of being spies. That's verse 9. And then when they denied it, Verses 10 through 14, he said he'd give them an opportunity to prove themselves. They have to bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, from Canaan to Egypt to personally appear before him. That's verse 15. And he told them that he would allow one of them to return to Canaan to get Benjamin, and the rest would remain in Egypt in jail. That's verse 16. So he put them all in jail for three days to think about it. That's verse 17. And after three days, Joseph had them appear before him again. Verse 18. And he informed them that after thinking about it, he had decided that all of them but one could return to Canaan to get Benjamin. That's verse 19. And he must have emphasized the seriousness of the charges against him because Joseph said, if you do not return, all of you will be executed. If you notice verse 20, he said, you shall not die, which means that they would die if they didn't follow precisely his orders. So in verses 21 and 22, they began to talk to each other about what had befallen them and why, and they began to confess to one another all that they had done to Joseph and all of their guilt and all of their bad deeds came back to haunt them. No, my, uh, it's in my mind that in their minds, uppermost in their minds probably, was how all of this was going to affect their aged father, Jacob. How could they face him? How could they tell him? How could they explain themselves? How would they ever be able to clear themselves with him? They did not realize, according to verse 23, that Joseph, who had been speaking unto them through an interpreter, understood every word they said. In fact, Joseph was so moved by their confession that he hurriedly left the room to weep. Verse 24 And when he had composed himself, he returned. And then to show them that he meant business, he had Simeon taken hostage and bound in their presence. Simeon would be the guarantee that they would return to appear before Joseph with Benjamin. Well, this brings us to verse 25. Now, thus far, in this series of studies, in this chapter, we have seen Jacob reeling. We have seen the brothers kneeling in Egypt. And today, we're going to begin to see providence dealing with them as they return home. So I hope you have your Bibles open. So we're going to consider the drama 
of the providence of God unfolded. The drama of the providence of God unfolded. Now they came to Egypt for corn, but they got a lot more than they came for. Look at verse 25. Verse 25. Joseph commanded to fill their sacks with corn and to restore every man's money into his sack and to give them provision for the way, and thus he did unto them. Now they came. They came for corn, but they got more than they came for. This verse says that their sacks were filled with corn. It says, secondly, they were given extra provisions for the journey. And it said, thirdly, unknown to them, their money was returned also. It was put back in the sacks with their corn. The money that they had brought to purchase corn was returned and hidden in their sacks. So having been released by Joseph, they began the trip home. That's verse 26. And on the way home, they stopped at an inn. You could compare that to a motel. To refresh themselves and feed their animals. Look at verse 27. Verse 27. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey food in the inn. This is where they stopped. He spied his money. Behold, it was in the sack's mouth. Well, he immediately, according to verse 28, he immediately reported his findings to his brothers, and they were all terrified. Their faces turned white. Their hearts seemed like they were going to break out of their chest. And they said they felt that God himself was determined to destroy them because of their actions against Joseph 23 years ago. You notice the end of verse 28. They said one to another, what is this that God has done to us? Now, when they finally got home, they told their father what had happened. Verses 29 through 34. And after telling their story, each man opened his sack And to their utter confusion, each sack, along with the corn, had money. Verse 35. Came to pass, as they emptied their sacks, that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when both they and their father, old Jacob, saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. This so frightened them that no doubt they were white-faced, and even Jacob was frightened because he saw the money too. And then his fright turned to anger, and he began, verse 36, he began to upbraid them. Me, you have bereaved of my children. Joseph is not. Simeon is not. And now you want to take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. Joseph is gone. Simeon's gone. Now you want Benjamin to be taken into Egypt. Well, Reuben tries to console his father. Verse 37. He offers his two sons as collateral. Dad, if you'll let me take Benjamin back, I'll offer my two sons to you and you can kill them if you want to if I don't come back with Simeon and with Benjamin. But the old man was steadfast. Verse 38, my son shall not go down with you. His brother is dead and he's left alone and if something happened to him, it would be the end of me. So we see the drama of the providence of God unfolding in the life of Joseph, of Jacob, and the sons of Jacob up to this point. Now we use that word providence a lot. 
And if you do any research at all, you're going to see that the providence of God is an ex- a major doctrine. It's a super major doctrine for Christians, for Christian teachers, for Christian theologians. And it's very important that we understand it. So what is the providence of God? What does the providence of God encompass? How should we relate to the providence of God? So let me first of all talk to you about understanding the providence of God. Now, I've had the brothers put a couple of terms up there, the Latin and the Greek. I would like for you to look up at the screen. From the Latin provider, which means foresight or to foresee, and uh, from the Greek, pornoia, which means forethought. Now let's keep those up there a minute. We get our idea, our concept, our definition about providence from the Latin and the Greek ideas. Foresight, or to foresee, and forethought. Now forethought and foresight imply a future end or result, and a definite purpose and plan for obtaining that end. So let me explain, and follow along with me now, and I think it'll begin to make sense to you in just a minute. The God of the Bible is a rational being. Now we know this for a number of reasons, but the simple answer is that since we are rational beings and we were created by him in his image, we conclude that he is a rational being. Now, how do we know that we are rational beings? Well, the most essential element of rational beings is that they act with reference to an end. In other words, when we want to accomplish something, we come up with a plan. Uh, We don't simply think that something will happen just because we want it to happen, but we come up with a plan to make it happen. Now, granted, we're not always successful with our plans for a number of reasons, and I'll just give you two reasons why we are not always successful with our plans and why the Lord is always successful with his plans. The first reason our plans often fail is because we don't have perfect knowledge of all events and circumstances. Things that we don't foresee can happen, and things we thought would happen often don't. Remember an old country song, what is to be will be and what ain't to be just might happen. But this is not a problem for our Lord and for our God because he is omniscient. We have that word on the board? There it is. You see the word O-M-N-I? That means all. All science. It means all knowledge. Our God is omniscient. He possesses the attribute of omniscience. He knows all things. He knows all things that could happen. That's possibility. He knows all things that might happen. That's probability. And he knows all things that will happen. That's certainty. Nothing can happen or not happen that he does not know about. Now, there are many examples in the Bible which illustrate the omniscience of God. I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings chapter 22, I really could just use Jacob and Joseph and all of that, but we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 22. In fact, let me say this. The omniscience of God is the major foundation for prophecy. All prophecy is based upon God's omniscience. 
When he says something will happen, it will happen. When he says something will not happen, it won't. And of course, Joseph and Jacob and Joseph's brothers are wonderful illustrations of this. The will and the purpose of God as revealed through Joseph's two dreams when he was only 17 years old is being fulfilled to the letter. Now Joseph has been exalted to a position of sovereignty and of power and his brothers have bowed down to him something they said they would never do. But let's, let me give you a more extreme example from 1 Kings chapter 22. This chapter tells us about the death of Ahab, a wicked king of Israel. He wanted to take Ramoth-Gilead, a city which belonged to the tribe of Gad, but which at this time was under the control of Syria. Now, he thought he could take it, but he didn't want to go to battle by himself, so he called upon the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, to help him. When King Jehoshaphat arrived, Ahab, to impress Jehoshaphat, called 400 men-pleasing prophets, called the prophets of the grove. He called them together to supposedly tell him whether he should go to battle or not, whether he would be successful or not, or whether he would be defeated. And all 400 of these men-pleasing prophets said he would be successful. One of them even made some iron horns. He made one horn stood for Jehoshaphat, one hand horn stood for Ahab, and he said, with these two horns, you'll push him out, and you'll be 100% victorious. But Jehoshaphat was a strong believer in the God of Israel. And he said, is there not a prophet of the Lord around here? And Ahab said, yeah, there's one guy, but I don't like him because he never says anything good to me. His name is Micaiah. And so they called this prophet named Micaiah. Ahab hated Micaiah. Here's why he hated him. He hated him because he couldn't be bribed. He always told the truth. You couldn't bribe him. He wasn't moved with money and gold and silver and power. I have some statistics I'll share with you at a later date, not today, that I heard this morning on television about the droves of people leaving churches. Droves of people leaving. No matter what you, you hear, you hear that everything's thriving. It is not. People are leaving they don't have any substance. They don't have anything to stand on. We may not have a huge church, but we have a faithful group of people. And I'd rather have, and I said this 30, 40 years ago, I'd rather have 25 faithful people than have 2,000 people that you can't depend on. That are moved with every wind of doctrine and in and out and up and down. Well, the king of Judah said, let's have a prophet of the Lord. So they called this Micaiah. And uh, they told Micaiah, they said, now when you go in before the king, be a smart thing if you said he's going to be successful because he's called 400 of these prophets of the groves and they all said, you're going to be successful. And so when he came in and they asked him the question, he said, go on to war and you shall be a successful. He said it like that. And King Ahab said, trying to impress Jehoshaphat, now how many times have I told you don't speak anything but the truth? Whatever the Lord tells you, that's what you say. So Ahab said, well, I saw from the Lord that Israel is like a team of sheep with no shepherd. They have no king. They have no leader. And... Uh, Boy, Ahab said, didn't I tell you? He never says anything good. And when they asked him what should be done, he told 
Ahab, listen now, he said, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these 400 prophets. Look at it. The Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these 400 prophets. Let's, let's start with uh, verse 15. And it came to the king. He said, go and prosper. The Lord will deliver it into your hand. Verse 16, the king said, now how many times do I have to tell you to say nothing but what's truth in the name of the Lord? And then he starts telling the truth. Verse 17, I saw all of Israel scattered upon the hills as sheep that don't have a shepherd. And the Lord says, these have no master. Let them return every man to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you he wouldn't prophesy any good about me? He always says evil. Hear therefore the word of the Lord. Now here's Micaiah still speaking. Verse 19. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. I saw all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall or be killed at Ramoth Gilead? And one spirit spake after this manner and another spake after this manner. And there came forth the spirit, verse 21, stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said, verse 22, how are you going to persuade him? And he said, I'll go forth and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and prevail. Go ahead and do it. Now, therefore, verse 23, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. Not the Lord's prophets, they're your prophets. And the Lord has spoken evil concerning you. And one of the fellows reached forward, verse 24, one of the false prophets, and he smote Micaiah on the jaw, on the cheek, verse 24. And he said, well, which way did the Spirit of the Lord go for me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, you're going to see it when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself, verse 25. You'll see then where the Spirit of the Lord went. And so the king of Israel said, you take this Micaiah and you put him in prison, verse 27, and you feed him with the bread of affliction and with the water of affliction until I come back in peace. And Micaiah spoke up in verse 28 and he said, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. Now here's a man who's told you go to battle, you're going to be killed. Just like we're told, you go on in life, you go on and do what you want to do. When you go out into eternity, you're going to meet the God that you don't know. And you're going to find judgment. But we don't believe it. America doesn't believe it. This world doesn't believe it. This king didn't believe it. So, what happens? Well, he went out to battle. But he said, hey, I know how to guarantee I'm going to be safe. Verse 30, the king of Israel, Ahab, said, I tell you what, I'm going to disguise myself. I'm not going out in my royal chariot with my royal robes. That'd be easier to identify me. You know, if the devil came in here today with a pitchfork and two horns on his head, it'd be easy to identify But he doesn't come in that way. He comes in with a dress on or with a... Uh, a suit on and comes in smiling and saying, praise the Lord. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. And so King Jehoshaphat says, I'm going to disguise myself. I'm going to put on. I tell you what, Jehoshaphat, you put on your royal robes and you wear, you ride in your royal chariot, but I'm going to disguise myself. And I, how they're going to hit me if they don't know I'm in the battle. Now, the king of Syria, verse 31, had told his commanders, listen, we're interested in one person in this battle. You know, it's just like a stampede. You get the head horse or the head cow, the rest of them will break up. So they said, we just want one man. We want this Ahab. So you look for Ahab. 
Well, they saw, a, they saw a king in a chariot, and they thought it was Ahab, and they started chasing him. And when he cried out, they saw it was Jehoshaphat, so they let him go. Verse 33, when it came to pass, when the captains of the chariots perceived that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. Now, what did God tell Ahab through Micaiah? He said, if you go to battle, you're going to die. But he didn't believe it. So he took all these steps to protect himself. And then what the, the Spirit of God inspires the writer here to say, verse 34, a certain man drew a bow at a venture. You know what that means? It means he's just shooting, man. I mean, there's all these people coming this way. I'm just shooting. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get somebody. You might get me, but I'm going to get a few of you. He just drew it at a, at a venture. It was by chance, we would say. And one of those arrows directed by God Almighty, and I want to remind you of something, God is a marksman. And when he shoots at you, he doesn't miss. I hear people say, he cheated death. Now, you don't cheat death. You don't cheat death. You cheat death, you're cheating God. You can't, God, you can't cheat God. And this man drew a bow at a venture, and that, that bow hit the king of Israel. He had this harness on to protect him, and right here, just right in this area, there was a little joint, you know, where it's sewn together. That arrow went right in between that in the joint and smote him. And he said to his driver, verse 34, I'm wounded. And the battle was increased that day, and they propped him up. Verse 35, and at evening he died, and the blood ran out of the womb into the midst of the chariot. My friends, think about it. Through the prophet Micaiah, Ahab was warned not to go to battle. If he did, he'd be killed, but he wouldn't listen. He believed the 400 preachers who said he would be victorious. After all, they were the majority, you know. So every day we think everything big is successful. You know, if you got a big church, or if you got a big building, or if you got a big corporation, or if you got a big house. But I remind you, the Lord said to his few disciples, he said, Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give unto you the kingdom. So he believed this 400 prophets because they were the majority against Micaiah, one guy. They wouldn't listen. And he disguised himself so he couldn't be found out. But in spite of it all, the word of the Lord concerning him by the mouth of Micaiah the prophet was fulfilled. See, Ahab's problem was not the Syrian soldiers. They didn't know where he was. They didn't know that he had disguised himself. They didn't know which chariot he was in, but the Lord did. As somebody said, you can fool some of the people all of the time, and you can fool all of the people some of the time. But I say, you can't fool the Lord any of the time. Because he knows all things. But we're not successful because we're not omniscient. But the Lord is always successful because he is omniscient. He knows what could happen, possibility. He knows what might happen or might not happen, probability. And he knows what will happen, certainty. The second reason we're not always successful and God is always successful is because we're not as successful because we're not omnipotent. Omnipotent. Again, O-M-N-I, all potent, all potent, all power. We don't possess enough power or authority to always effect success. Often things happen that we can't do anything about because we don't have the power to stop it or to change it. And often, th uh, often things don't happen because we don't have the power, the authority to make them happen. But this is no problem for our sovereign God. He's omnipotent. He's almighty. 
He has the power to make something happen or to prevent something from happening. Nothing is beyond his power. He can open a sea as he did for Moses. He can cause birds to feed a prophet as he did for Elijah. He can order worms to devour a man as he did Herod. He can make water gush forth from a work, a rock as he did for Israel. He can order a great fish to swallow a man as he did with Jonah. He can raise the dead as he did with Lazarus. With him, nothing is impossible because he has all power. He is omnipotent. If something gets in his way, in the way of his plan, he can remove it. Or he can even use it to carry out his plan. That's exactly what he's done with the devil. He used the devil to put it into the heart of Judas to go to the Jews to betray the Son of God. He can do anything because he is God. Have you ever read the book of Job when the devil goes up before the Lord and the Lord says, where have you been? It's all just going to and fro on the earth. He said, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him that fears God and eschews evil or shuns evil. And the devil said, listen now, the devil said, put forth your hand now. And then the Lord said to the devil, okay, you can go get him, but don't touch him. The devil, in that instance, was the Lord's hand upon Job. That's right. The devil was the Lord's hand. He uses the devil just like he uses everybody else and anything else to accomplish his plan and his purpose because he is God. He is God. And the fact that the Lord is a rational being means that he has a plan and he has a purpose for all things. And because he's omniscient and omnipotent, he knows all, he has all power, His plans are always successful. He's always able to bring his plan to a desired end. And so the providence of God is the outworking of the eternal purpose and will of God in time, space, and history. It is the foresight and the forethought of God unfolding before our very eyes. It is the spirit of prophecy being fulfilled, reaching its predetermined end, which end was purposed in the mind of God from all eternity. All that the Lord planned in eternity and promised to Adam, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob is being worked out in time in the history of the world. So once more, providence is the working out of the plan and the purpose of God based upon divine foresight and forethought. This means that everything that's happening to Joseph, to Jacob, and to Jacob's sons is being orchestrated by the wise, sovereign, and benevolent, loving and gracious God of all creation for their good. And for his glory. So this brings us to the next question. What does the divine providence of God encompass? By that I mean who or what is involved. Well, let me read you this statement, and this will be up on the board. It's from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. Let me read this statement. You can read it. It says... The doctrine of divine providence has reference to that preservation, care, and government which God exercises over all things that he has created in order that they may accomplish the ends for which they were created. In other words, absolutely nothing is excluded from divine providence. Not a worm can wiggle, not a sparrow can fall to the ground, not a hair on your head can fall to the floor without your heavenly Father's permission or decree. We're not going to live 
any longer or die any earlier than the Lord has determined. Nothing is left to chance or randomness. And yet, every creature, listen, to this is important. Every creature may live and do according to the dictates of its own nature. Or in the case of rational creatures, human beings, sometimes we don't act too rational. But in the case of human beings, we can act as we will or as we choose. To put it another way, men and women, boys and girls, can do as they please. And yet the will and the purpose of God will be done. Now I want you to turn. We've looked at this passage a hundred times. Let's look at it one more time. Acts chapter 4. You saw that in that 1 Kings 22 passage with Ahab. He heard. He didn't believe it. He went to battle. Nobody made him go. He wanted to go. And you can imagine in the battle if he's in another chariot. You can imagine where he was going. He might have gone here and gone there and gone here and backed up some. He might have gone over here and gone over there. But the arrow that that guy shot, you know, it's like a wreck. You get at a certain place at a certain time and somebody else gets at a certain place at a certain time and there's a wreck. I was sitting in our parking lot two or three weeks ago when I met with Brother Alexander and his son to discuss his baptism on a Saturday. And there was a car at the back of the parking lot. When, we get, when I got here at 10 o'clock, there was a car back there. We came inside. We were probably in 45 minutes to an hour. We went outside. That car was still there, the back of our parking lot. And uh, Brother Alexander and Eli left. I got in my car. Normally, I'd go back and say something, but our gate's broken out here. So I made my circle. I came to the gate, and I stopped. And I stopped, and I was looking at the gate on the left, and all of a sudden, wham! I was hit on the right side by that lady that decided she would leave at that particular time. Why did that happen? That's what I asked the Lord. <laughs> I told you about Henry Mahan preaching down in Sylacauga, Alabama. I was in a meeting with him many, many years ago, 30, 40 years ago. And while Henry was talking about the sovereignty of God and God is in control of everything, a bee flew up his leg and stung him. And he grabbed his leg and he looked up and said, what was that for? (laughs) My friends, we, listen to me, I don't want you to think that men and women are not free to do what they want to do. You're free to do anything you want to do. But the will of God is going to be done. Now look at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We'd like to, we'd like to be able to blame God and say, well, the reason I couldn't do it because you wouldn't let me. Or the reason I fell in that hole, that hole is because you pushed me. No, no. No, you can, you can do what you want to do, but his will is going to be done. In Acts chapter 4, after Peter and John and the other disciples were threatened for preaching the gospel and healing a man, they went back out with the other disciples. This is one of my favorite passages. Verse 23, Acts chapter 4, being let go. By the authorities, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God, verse 24, with one accord, all together. And they said, Lord, your God, you've made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is. Watch this now. Who by the mouth of your servant David said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? Where is that found? That's found in Psalm 2. They're quoting Psalm 2. They said, way back, you said through David that the heathen were going to rage and the people were going to imagine that they could overthrow your will. The kings of the earth, verse 26, he's still quoting Psalm 2. The kings of the earth stood up, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against this Christ. 
He said, that's what David said. And, and this is true, Lord, because look here, verse 27. Against your holy child Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Now, all of them did what they wanted to do. They acted freely. They acted without constraint. They acted without restraint. They acted without any compulsion, coercion, or force that limited their freedom or their action or their choice. But the will of God was done. The Lord said way back 2,000 years ago what was going to begin to happen in the earth before his coming. I don't know how much more we got to happen, but I know things are beginning to turn. I know that, at least in this country. The same goes for Joseph's brothers. Were they constrained or restrained or compelled or coerced or forced to do what they did? They acted freely in all that they did to Joseph. They, they did, didn't they hate him freely? Didn't they freely plan to murder him? Didn't they freely change their minds and put him in a pit? Didn't they freely sell him to the Ishmaelites? And when they came before him in Egypt, not knowing that he was the governor, did they not freely do what they said they would never do, bow to him? God said they would, they said they wouldn't, but they did. And they did it without constraint, without compulsion, without coercion, and without any force. They did it freely. (laughs) The only safe place is in Christ. That's the only safe place in this world, is in Christ. If you come to Christ, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I can promise you that everything providentially that happens to you, even if it seems, if individual things seem to be bad, it'll all work for your good and it'll work for his glory. But out of Christ, no place is safe. You can disguise yourself when you go into battle. You can get in another chariot. You can pretend you're somebody else. But the arrow of God is going to find you. The arrow of God is going to find you. Listen to this, and I close. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. When Adam took the fruit, the forbidden fruit, from the hand of his wife in disobedience to his heavenly father, And creator, did he do it freely? He did it freely. David said, I will freely sacrifice unto thee. I will praise thy name, O Lord, for it is good. Psalm 54, 6. If David is worshiping the Lord by compulsion, his worship is hypocritical. Listen to this, Romans 8, 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, all that the Lord gives us in his son is given freely. It's ours for the taking. And if we don't have something that's been given to us in Christ, we have only ourselves to blame. First Corinthians 2.12, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Who can be saved? Who can be saved? Romans, uh, Revelation 21.6, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, I will give unto him that is thirsty of the fountain of water of life freely. Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for God? Listen to this. Revelation twenty-two seventeen, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. 
And let him that hears say, come. And let him that is thirsty, come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Men in hell are not going to be able to blame God. Not going to be able to blame God. But I can tell you this, you can do what you want to do. His will is going to be done. We will consider more of the providence of God in our next study, God willing, and I live.